We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Transformative Principle, episode 56, with Charles Fox. Welcome to Transformative Principle, the show where we learn every week from a leader who's making a difference, how to become better and improve our schools. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. You can find great resources and the show notes at transformativeprinciple.com. This week is the last chance to get your communication cards for free from jethrojones.com. Click on new products, use the code transformative to get your communication cards for free as a way of me saying thank you to you for listening to this podcast. I want you to know that these communication cards have absolutely allowed me to establish a good relationship with my staff and for them to be able to feel more comfortable coming and talking to me about things that are difficult to talk about. It's still not always easy and it's never going to be perfect, but this at least gives us an opportunity to get on common ground as quickly as possible. I hope that they help you as much as they have helped me. So go to jethrojones.com, click on new products in the top right and use the code transformative to get these for free before the price goes up at the end of the month. Yeah. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about how to make IEP meetings good. What what uh, what can administrators do and teachers do to to help with that process? You said be comfortable sharing your opinion and not being uh, feel threatened that you're going to get in trouble later. So that's that's one thing. What else needs to happen in those meetings? Well, I think sometimes um, what what I've seen that's, that's incredibly helpful is even having like um, well, first of all, sharing reports ahead of time. You know, bringing reports to the table in the moment and expecting parents to hear what's frequently hard 
information about their kid, it's it's mm-hmm. really that's that's like a big no no. And depending on the, the the level of of experience of the parent, and, and depending on the um, level of complexity of the report and the ability of the parent, you know, to comprehend it. I have had situations where, say, the psychologist for the school will, like, an hour before the meeting or a day before the meeting, sit down with the parent and kind of have a debrief so that there's sort of a, a preview of what's coming and, and an opportunity to sort of ask questions. And because one of the things that I see is, um, you know, um, sort of a basic lack of understanding and and because this stuff is tough i mean it, it took me a while to really kind of get my hands around okay what what does it mean by a standard score what does it mean by a scaled score you know what exactly are we testing here and you know how does this all fit together and and what does this really mean for my child and his or her education so you know it, it can be very bewildering, and at times either parents just shut down or can become, you know, very defensive and feel like, you know, yeah, I'm not really part of the team because I have no idea what it is that you all are talking about. So I think, again, making it meaningful for everyone, including the parents, and I would say sort of the subset of that is where school districts around 12, 13, 14 years old, they say, well, we feel obliged to bring the student to the table at the IAP meeting. And I think that that makes a lot of sense under one very specific condition, is where the student has has an understanding of why they're there, and then they have a defined role as to what it is that they're going to be expected to do. The best meetings I've seen, and, and I actually I put this under the heading of self-advocacy, and I've asked and frequently been successful in getting schools to write a goal for, in 12 months, the student is going to um, participate in his or her IEP meeting by presenting a PowerPoint regarding his or her needs, his or her challenges in school, what's worked, what hasn't, and what they would like to see next. And so and then and then it gets broken down into objectives that track with that list that I just stated. So mm-hmm. when they come to the table, they're not just warming a chair, that it becomes it really refocuses things on the student and and they have uh, a very clearly defined you know role in terms of what it is that they're they're doing there and it increases their you know sort of for many students the first step in in the way of self advocacy because i think that's an incredibly critical skill in life um for post secondary education and um just sort of day to day in in a variety mm-hmm. of ways and um so, you know, when people foster that, I think, um, you know, it, it makes the student happier. I think it makes the meeting better, and it certainly makes the parents feel like, wow, they really care about my kid. Yeah. Um, that's a that's an interesting goal to put on the IEP that I haven't – I've never heard of that being on there before, but I can think of a few 
that I've attended this year where that would have been incredibly appropriate for kids who could understand why they're on an IEP and could understand what their needs are and could articulate that as well. And um, there are some kids that, you know, they they just don't they they don't even get that they're on an IEP. Like my daughter, for example, she she just thinks that we get to meet with her teachers as part of parent teacher conferences, and that it happens more than others, or maybe she doesn't even get that. So that's a that's an interesting idea. I really like that. Um, is so I think I, goal, I think that so I think both advocacy at whatever level is appropriate to the student is an incredibly important role. And, um, you know, for, I mean, and again, that's a topic that I can talk at, at really great length because, um, and I think that the, being that this is a fairly controlled, safe environment, or at least it should be for students. These are people, these are adults that they know. There's mom and dad. There's, you know, my teacher who I know and my you know, other related services, people that I know, and, you know, administrators that I probably know as well, that this is sort of a, a forum that will allow – it's a no-lose situation because if I advocate mm-hmm. and I'm not great at it, there's there's no harm, you know. Right. And so it's sort of like this is sort of the place to try it out. And um, so that when I go to the store and say, I'm sorry, I don't know where the product is, or or I, I'm sorry, and even on more serious levels, um, you know, don't touch me like that. You know, right. there's a whole range of self-advocacy. And, you know, and, and not to get too far afield, but one goal that, you know, again, as appropriate to the student is, um, you know, how to deal with first responders is a goal that I've been advocating for, you know, given mm-hmm. sort, of, sort of a variation on the current headlines that I have any number of students, some, you know, on the spectrum and, and otherwise that don't do well when something happens suddenly or they're faced mm-hmm. with an authority figure, whether in school or out of school. And, and sometimes they can go really, really badly. And, um, and, and and so, you know, I, I and I brought that up at a at a conference I was speaking at before school personnel, and there was um, a woman came up to me who works in schools and said, you know what we do? We actually get the local police department to do like a um, like a mock you know traffic encounter with some of our students, you know, mm-hmm. so that they can they can sort of do a dress rehearsal of how it should go and how it should not go when you're dealing with the first responder. Mm-hmm. I thought that was terrific. It was very creative. Wow. That is that is a really great idea. I thought of um, some students that I've had who I know if they were with their parents and got pulled over by the police, that's a stressful experience no matter who you are, you know? And, yeah, I know. Uh, and how uh, how badly they could react to that experience as a passenger in the car and how much that could escalate the situation and make it even more scary for everybody involved. And 
especially with with uh, with some of the kids that I've known that are that are grown men already in their fifth grade year um, and very tall and heavy and um, very strong and how if they started escalating and they go violent when they escalate how that could um, that could be bad for everybody and that, yeah no I, you're, you're, that's exactly what I'm saying absolutely I I've never even thought of that Charlie and <laughs> so I I I appreciate you saying that because that's something that we need to be able to do. One thing that we do at our schools, we have the firemen actually come to the building. We're a small town, and so thankfully there's not a lot of fire, and it's always raining. So that's that's good. Nothing's dry to burn very often, and and thankfully those guys, those firemen can come to our building and be stationed near some of our special ed classrooms, so that the kids can at least see them and see that. This may be scary, and we prepare our kids for that, so they're they're not shocked by it, because um, we don't want to set them up for a a bad situation. But that's that's been one thing that has been simple that has helped us. Um, I think let those kids see what what those firemen look like when they're all dressed up in their gear, because they come in their gear, and hopefully, if anything ever happens, they'll be a little bit more more calm, knowing. These are people that I've seen in my school, and school is a safe place, and they're probably here to help me. And, and hopefully they can make that connection, but we probably well, need to nice be more thing, explicit the, about it. And the nice thing about being in a smaller community is that, you know, people know each other on more of an individual mm-hmm. level. So it's like, yeah. oh, I know John. I know John. He's a fireman. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I've met him a number of times, and, and – and he's and he's you know a really nice guy and and he's only here to um, to serve and to help and um, yeah uh, I, I applaud you for that it sounds like a really you know good program yeah well I think we need to do better thank you for your suggestion <laughs> sure thing um, well, thank you for your question <laughs> what uh, when when you're working with with cases that you're working on are they typically um, Students who have more severe disabilities or students who might have something that is less severe, like a, a learning disability, for example, or is it kids who are typically on the spectrum who need much more support? Are we still struggling in that in that area of severe disabilities m- much more than than uh, less severe disabilities? No, I think it, it really uh, – I, I see it across the board. And um, okay. but if I were to categorize, I would say that um, at least a third of the students I represent are somewhere on the spectrum, and probably at least another third are um, students with LD, and, mm-hmm. and maybe a large majority of the remaining third are students with either emotional or behavioral issues. And unfortunately, I'm seeing um, sort of an increasing trend of students and I don't know why, but increasingly girls with um, emotional issues. But the most, well, lots of things that are disturbing, one of which is the lack of mental health services. And the other thing that's disturbing is, you know, when it comes to, say, a reading disability, is there's a lot of literature. There's, you know, um, National Reading Panel and, you know, in terms of best practices, and um, how limited in terms of intense knowledge in many schools that um, 
there's a book by Louisa Motes that says reading is rocket science and how little that's really understood, you know, that, you know, buying that shiny box of curriculum that has pretty colors on it and has sort of um, scripted um, lessons mm-hmm. may work for some, but doesn't work for many. And there's more to teaching reading than just following the laminated sheets in the shiny box. And, and, and sort of understanding, you know, I was saying this to my associate the other day, is how students matriculate from first to second and so on, and, and then they are in seventh grade and they're still, like, progressing almost not at all. Um, certainly someone must have seen over the years that that, that student in the third row on the right um, is, is not reading. Yet we somehow just say, okay, but it'll get better, and, and then they go on, and it doesn't get better. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the other, so, so the degree to which we have a lot of literature but are not applying it or applying it intensely or with fidelity in the area of reading kind of drives me nuts. And yeah. similarly, the amount of literature we know of how to work with kids on the spectrum, you know, say kids that are more involved on the spectrum, like one of the situations I see commonly is, you know, he punched me out of nowhere. And then when I sort of break right. it down into the, the sort of the moment, the frame-by-frame analysis, what frequently turns out is he was, he was well on his way to escalation for stimuli that we knew was troubling from the past, and we continue to talk to him. We just talked and talked and talked. And a question that I will ask is, did you, to what extent did you either stop talking or use um, a gesture or some other visual that would be more understandable under the circumstances? And, mm-hmm. and I would say that more times than not, the answer is, um, you know, essentially the answer will be I, I didn't use visuals and, um, or the extent that staff understands what I mean when I say visuals, like we'll say, well, we use a picture exchange system. Well, mm-hmm. that's fine, but that's not really a visual in terms of organizing the student's day. That's a form of communication, albeit using the same symbols for different purposes. So, again, the degree to which and, and again, I'm the lawyer, not the educator. And and when I come into a school and you know, and I'm asking about something as basic as visuals, and staff is really not understanding that, that is very troubling to me. And you know, and essentially, it's very rare that anyone, whether they're disabled or not disabled, does something for no reason at all. It may not be a reason that we will completely understand, but but there is a reason. I mean, one statement that I always make about the clients that I represent is that there is no us and them. There's only us. And Mm -hmm. my clients and I are pretty much the same, only I am either a lesser or greater variation on my clients, you know. 
or my clients, you know, it's just it's a it's a matter of degree that separates, you know, where I am and where they are. But but mm-hmm. we're, we're 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 not that different. You know, I'm not at all different than my clients. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I had I had an associate some time ago who has a brother who's nonverbal, 23 years old on the spectrum, and she and she would smile and tease, and it's like you do something, and she'd say, "Oh, here you go." You got the tism, you know, that was your manifestation of the tism, which was her abbreviation for autism. And, um, and I did something yesterday where I had to, like, I was at a restaurant, and I wiped off a little stain on the, um, the plastic thing where they deliver the check. And for whatever reason, that little, like, little piece of grease on the outside of the, the, the bill holder bothered me, and I had to wipe off the grease, and I just laughed to myself. It's like, Yes, I have the tism. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So you talked about visuals and said you were surprised that many educators didn't know what you were talking about. So will you define what you mean by visuals to make sure that uh, that we're clear on what that exactly is? Well, I'll, I'll give you one quick example. I had a student, a young student, who was not so young anymore, but um, he was having a very difficult time in public school. And... You know, frequently he would have behaviors when he was um, being involved with literacy activities, going to the library, or he was like six, seven years old at the time. And he was nonverbal, and so we ultimately got him tuitioned out to a nearby private school that specializes in working with kids with autism. And the mom wanted me to take a tour of the school with her, and she showed me where her son's desk would be. And in the right-hand corner of the desk, there was a laminated small stop sign and you know that at any time a student could hold this up and say you know basically stop the world i want to get off and mm-hmm. as soon as i saw as soon as i saw that i said her son's name was michael i said michael's going to do great here things are going to be fine and yeah and six, and six years later you know when i heard back from her it's like michael had done great there so visuals in terms of you know, in that case, that was a, a receptive. But, but I think schedules. Or mm-hmm. I'll give you even a more pronounced example, and this is maybe the most pronounced example. I had a student who lived in a very rural school district. He did not have autism, but he had a condition that looked a lot like autism, and he would. Um, he had a very horrendous school experience where. He was manhandled and injured by staff. Not a very common situation. It was very, very bad. And so we ultimately moved him to a neighboring school that was quite a distance away because this is a rural area, so a good 20 miles away. And when he went to the new school, a staff member came from the old school, which freaked him out. He entered a cornfield in late October, and it was cold, and fortunately for him, he was a chubby kid, which saved his life, and he disappeared. And the sun was going down, and miraculously, they found him just before sunset, but his body temperature was like just a little above 92 degrees, and another hour, another hour, and they're just, they're finding a dead body. And um, so, but back to the issue of visuals, went through a long due process, one, they brought in um, a very good behavior analyst who analyzed his new classroom 
And the first thing, so his behavior was elopement because he was still trying to elope from the new classroom to leave. Uh, so she looked at it, and she's a really remarkably practical person. And, and so the first thing she did was she went to the hardware store and she got a roll of yellow tape, like yellow um, electrical tape, and she made a three or four inch strip at the threshold of the classroom. And then she wrote a social story, and the social story said that this student will not leave the classroom, will not cross the yellow line that was clearly marked for him without being in the company of a staff member. Mm -hmm. Never left the class again. So in that case, there were two visuals. One was the social story, and the other was the electrical tape, the yellow electrical tape. Um, and visuals in the form of timers, visuals in terms of schedules and subschedules. I believe the, the sort of the queen of visuals is a woman named Carol Gray who's written a series of books on, you know, creating and using visuals. And it's not just for kids on the spectrum. I mean, frankly, again, you know, my clients are just like me and I'm just like them. You go to the store, you bring a list, that's a visual, you know. Right. And because that way you know what you need and you, you know what you're going to do. Your your schedule, you know, in terms of what you're going to do at this hour versus that hour, that's a visual. And some students who are more literate, you know, the visual can be a list of words. Some that are not, it can be a list of pictures. And, um, you know, there's a whole, and, and, and like I said, and even like sub-schedules, okay, so we're going to do, um, we're going to do a cooking activity. Well, within that cooking activity, there are sub-steps and even sub-sub-steps that, mm -hmm. you know. And, and I had one behavior analyst once say that she's like, using visuals is really great. Frequently, the student masters the visual pretty frequently or pretty, pretty quickly. But she says, but I advocate not giving up on it because the staff needs the visual. Right. I, thought, I thought that was pretty. I thought that was pretty funny, and, um, and yeah. you know, she's, she's pretty terrific. Yeah, you know, that's that's one um, interesting dynamic of the staff still needing the visual and the reminder. Um, so, in my last school, um, we used what's called Champs, which is a, a classroom management strategy where each of the words. Letters and champs stands for something, conversation, help, activity, movement, participation, and then success. And, and what I found when we implemented that at our last school was that our teachers were able to be so much more consistent with their expectations. And the visual helped them just as much as it helped the students. And so one time a student was doing something inappropriate in a teacher's classroom while I was in there observing, and she said, what, does our, what is our expectation for the activity right now or something like that? And she, um, you know, in a moment of what this kid is doing is not the worst thing in the world, but it's certainly annoying his classmates, and we need to change it. And does this actually, like, could he be getting away with this? She wasn't 100% sure, so referred to the champs board that had visuals and words describing what was supposed to be happening and was able to say, have a discussion with that student focused on that other thing that 
made it so that he could understand what he was supposed to do. And that was a major light bulb for her saying, having that up made it so that I, I didn't have to remember everything. I didn't have to pay attention to everything all the time. If I didn't see something I didn't like, if I saw something I didn't like, I referred to the board and we talked about it with the student and then the student decided if that was appropriate or not. And that, that visual really helped me. So um, we as adults need that as well. And sometimes we think these things are just for the kids, but they can be for the adults too. And not only is that a really good thing, but there's also no shame in admitting that as an educator that you need those visual reminders as well. Because Well, and, and, and I think you know, I actually taught a year in um, law school, uh, a um, clinical class, where students are trying out what it's like to be a lawyer under the supervision of a practicing attorney. And mm -hmm. and one, so that was my only experience in terms of being a teacher. And and I realized that when, when you're a teacher, there's a lot going on in every moment. And I think that having that sort of scripted way of dealing with it and sort of taking down the cognitive load for the teacher, saying, mm -hmm. okay, I think that can be, and it sounds like that was incredibly um, effective. So, um, you know, it sounds like, a, again, a great intervention, you know, in terms of, you know, best practices and looking at it from the teacher's point of view. Because, yeah. you know, one thing that I have found is, and, you know, sort of using, and I, and I frequently use you, like, firemen or policemen as an example is the natural inclination of people is if their house is on fire, God forbid, is, is to run away from it. And if you think about the role of a firefighter, mm -hmm. they are having to overcome the natural sort of, and I would say, deeply ingrained fear of going to a fire when, you know, in a dangerous situation. And Again, I've not been trained as a firefighter, but I have to imagine that part of their training is to is to overcome that with I can do this because I have strategies. So I yeah. will not become emotional. I will not become overwhelmed. I will not become irrational. Um, I will be mindful. I will be thoughtful. You know, I'm sure military training is similar, or police training, or otherwise, is that when you're Face with something that would normally get you upset or, you know, shut down your, your cognitive processes, that you um, are able to not just make it through, but make it through effectively. And, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with CPI, Crisis Prevention Institute. Mm -hmm. Heard of it. Not that familiar It's a company out of Milwaukee, cpi.com. And... CPI has five or six phases, and each of the and the the sixth or seventh phase is where you're out of control. I've tried everything else. Now I have to put my hands on you and restrain you in some therapeutic way. Mm -hmm. But the object of CPI is is that if you're well trained and you follow the pre, you know one through six, very very infrequently will you ever get to seven. Right. And, um, so that when you're faced with someone who is upset, out of control, yelling, even being physically hostile, that 
you have tools in your toolbox that don't involve, you know, the possibility of further harm where you have to grab an individual and both people may get hurt. And, um, and you know, in the category of due process, well, that's kind of the fast ticket to due process and, and worse on both sides. And there's yeah. not a lot of room for logical conversation when the teacher has a broken hand and the kid has a concussion. Right. So both both yeah. sides are equal, equally outraged at the other, and it's not very easy to, like, bring it back down to the point of having uh, a good discourse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that, uh, that is a hard place to be for sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate the time that you've given me and my audience. Um, I've learned a ton from this conversation, and I could continue asking you questions for hours, I'm sure, because <laughs> this is fascinating stuff to me, and it's something that educators definitely need to be to be aware of. Um, can you leave us with one tip of, t- of what we can do as administrators to improve um, relationships and IEP meetings or something to help us be better? What would you suggest we can start doing today? Do whatever you can to foster a trusting and transparent environment with parents and recognizing that it's okay if people aren't in agreement. What's not okay is when it gets to the point where there is not an ability to communicate and have respect on both sides because at that point there is – very little that is um, able to be um, accomplished at all. So it's been my pleasure talking to you for this last hour. It's kind of flown by, and, um, and you know, I, I think that terrific administrators and terrific principals and special ed directors make a world of difference. And, um, yeah, so. Well, thank you. Can you tell us how people can get a hold of you and, uh, and your website as well? Yeah. Um, my website is foxspecialedlaw.com. My blog is specialedlaw.blogs, B-L-O-G-S, dot com. And, you know, that's where you can find me. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast. Please subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, and please feel free to give us a rating on Stitcher Radio or on iTunes so that we can help spread the word about how much we're learning in this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Do you want to simplify your school's technology? save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, FlexTime enables students to get extra help or intervention 
meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.